I'm Beth. And I'm Leslie. Welcome to Quince. A little sweet. A little tart. And a little unexpected. Oh, today is Thursday, October the 12th, 2017. And we have some wonderful things to do today. I know. <laughs> Leslie, we're so lucky. We have two <laughs> guests here. Can you believe I lived with their family in 1975 in Mundaring, Western Australia. So these are two of my sisters from way back then. We have Sue and Diane. So, good evening everyone. Yeah. Hi there. Hi, this is Diane. Good right. to be here. Uh, we're just, we've been having so much fun. They came, they they arrived here on Tuesday afternoon, and we have pretty much filled every moment, even if it meant sitting on the porch and talking, talking, and chatting, <laughs> and just having a great time. But you want to tell us a bit about why you even came to the States right now? Yes, it's been absolutely wonderful, and we've really enjoyed the American welcome everywhere. First of all in, in Dallas, Texas, and then here in Virginia. We came over for a very special event on the 7th of October. That event was the wedding of my daughter number two, Elizabeth, uh, to a Texan, Dan Johnson. They had met in Brazil several years ago when they were both working as foreign diplomats. Uh, it was Lizzie's first year of a three-year posting, and it was Dan's last year. So they enjoyed one year together, and after that had to have a long-distance romance. <laughs> That's wonderful. <clears throat> yes. So, Diane, you got to come over, and some of your family, too. Yes, unfortunately, not many of my family were able to come. It's a long distance from Western <clears throat> Australia. And they have jobs and children, uh, things that meant they couldn't come. Just my oldest daughter. I have a son and three daughters. And the oldest daughter said, I'm going no matter what. I left her husband and two little boys at home and came because she insisted she would be here at her cousin's wedding. Ah, yeah. Oh, I love it. Love it. Ah, so Sue, as the mother of the bride, um, you had to give a special I did, and I'll tell you a little bit about the setting. Uh, whereas Dan and Lizzie have been staying over in Seattle, the, his family, the groom, Dan, uh, his wonderful family, they live on a 20-acre property outside of Dallas, and they kindly offered to host the wedding there. They, uh, they organised a 4,000-square-metre uh, marquee, and there I were two... And there, uh, there were, there were two hundred and around about two hundred and thirty guests, of whom about seventy uh, managed to make it from Australia. Oh wow! That's great. That is great. And that in, that also included my husband, my son Christian, my daughter Yvette, uh, and my sister Diane, and niece Ariel, and a lot of other close friends. It was a really wonderful wedding. And yes, I was asked to start the speeches. and to I was given only three minutes. I said, I don't think I can make it in three minutes. However, uh, I did my best and it just took not, not too much longer than that. But what I would like to do, if it's okay with everyone here, is to just 
go over my speech a little bit. I was rather I was covering the my my thoughts on marriage, on marriage, and I just uh, would like to share that with you. Wonderful. We'd love to hear it. And and when you're done, then we'll we'll talk about what you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially since uh, Leslie and I have talked about marriage several times on that. Since both of us have. Uh, uh, had not so good luck with it, but that's okay. I'm I'm ever the romantic, so I'm excited to hear what you yeah. say. Well, I know all three of you have been through marriage and learned a lot, and uh, you've uh, moved on. And I'm sure you are ladies with a lot of wisdom that I'd like you to share a little later. First of all, I'd like to give you the speech and then see what your ideas are on this. Thank you. Here's the speech as I gave it on this special, special evening. Good evening, everyone. I have the honour of being invited to say a few words to Lizzie and Dan on this most important occasion of their life journey together. To the newly wedded couple, our dear Dan and Lizzie, congratulations to you both on your marriage. We are living in times where practices of the business world have infiltrated the personal domain. In business, as in politics... Indecision, fence-sitting, delayed commitment and, in inverted commas, keeping all options open, have often become the preferred modus operandi. While this may sometimes appear to work well enough in business and politics, it would seem to be less desirable in the personal sphere. Many people have found this so much to their chagrin. It is easy to love another person, It is a more serious challenge to commit to a future together where an individual becomes half of a team of two who seriously make a commitment to each other's physical, mental and spiritual well-being above one's own personal needs and aggrandissement. There will be sacrifices. Life isn't always smooth sailing. However, in return for their love and loyalty to each other, the harvest will be golden. It is refreshing and inspiring to see two young people who believe in their love for each other so earnestly that they have decided to embark upon this serious and truly wonderful journey of marriage. They are willing to make a lifelong commitment to loving one another, making life a team effort, sustaining one another, believing in one another and looking out for each other in the good times and in adversity. Married life will encompass many, many wonderful joys and adventures, physical, mental and spiritual. The joy will be twofold for this couple, meaningfully joined in marriage. We rejoice in this union, this strong declaration of Dan and Lizzie of their belief in each other. They are both strong personalities. They are both thinkers. They both have strong ethics and integrity. They both dare to challenge the status quo when they deem it necessary. Let's face it, they are a good match. And look, they had to journey miles across foreign lands to find each other, but find each other they did, and hence their destiny together. You will recall, my friends, from from Christian scripture, the words from Corinthians on the subject of individuality. We are reminded that for maximum strength, even the pillars of the great temples stand apart. Corinthians also reminds us to share our bread as a couple, but eat not of the same loaf. 
Generally, we may interpret these words as advising us to remain strong as a couple while retaining one's selfhood, that is, individuality, within the sacred bond of marriage. In essence, our individuality within marriage actually strengthens the partnership. Be kind to each other. Be courteous always. Treat each other with respect. Listen to your partner's viewpoint, even when you have conflicting opinions. This makes life more interesting anyway. Always love and care for one another. We rejoice in this union, this strong declaration of Dan and Lizzie of their belief in one another. You may be familiar with Desiderata, writings of old taken from that which was written on an ancient church wall many centuries ago. This antique wisdom tells us this, Neither be cynical about love, for in the face of aridity and disenchantment, it is as perennial as the grass. It is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful, strive to be happy. Dear Dan and Lizzie, may God bless your union. May your love for each other remain perennial as the grass. Thank you. Woohoo! That is beautiful. Very, very nice, Sue. Thank you. I, I wonder, uh, do you agree with some of the sentiments expressed here? Agree with all of them, I think. <laughs> yes, definitely. I especially like the emphasis on individuality within the strength of the couple. I think that's so important. Mm, I certainly think so. Leslie, what do you think? I think it's very good advice. I should have taken it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we probably all shouldn't. <laughs> I think so too. I think we've learned over the years. <laughs> and to be kind and respectful. Yeah. Gosh, that's so important. That is very important. And cheerful. Cheerful too. Remember, yes. really, despite everything, despite everything that the media would like to tell us, it actually is a very beautiful world. Yeah. Mm. Uh, we do need to be cheerful despite it all. And Diane, what do you think? Um, I, I, I think that certainly within a marriage, it's very important for each person to have their own individual identity um, and interests as well. They don't have to be the same. I mean, they came together, but they're different. Um, and I think it's really important that each person actually respects the other person's individuality. So that if they do things um, or have interests that the other person's not really interested in, they would at least acknowledge that they are just as important as the as the interests that they have, even if they're not things that interest them. Uh, same thing with jobs and all sorts of other things that um, if people can be together because they choose to be rather than because they need to be, I think that's important. If one person's there and expecting the other person to supply all their needs for entertainment, security, love and sustenance, um, then it becomes a big drain on the other person. So I think it's important that people realise that, that they each is responsible for their own development and their own happiness, but they also have a responsibility to the other person in the couple not to make them happy, but to enjoy happiness with them. And um, 
I think that's one of the things that I, I think it work, makes things work, is that if people respect each other, enjoy doing things together, but also enjoy doing things separately. Yes, I would certainly agree with that. And the others? Well, very wise. The, the one thing, of course, I think back having had a failed marriage, um, the, the respect level, just to respect each other. And with respect comes um, honoring those vows that you take, being being worthy of trust and trusting the other. Um, I think that's where a lot of problems end up coming from. Jealousy and you know just all those horrible things. And as we get older, we see that. But sometimes when we're young, we just don't understand. And we need to be reminded of that. That's so true. I think another big issue is while we are individuals and we should be respecting our individuals and we do need to develop as people, we need to make sure that we also develop as a couple so mm. that we do walk in the same direction, if you like, um, even if we're not always linked together. Right. So that uh, where one person puts all their energy into work, and perhaps the other person puts all their energy into socializing or having a, raising a family or something else, then they can lose the coupleness and lose the connection. And then a lot of resentments come in and people feel that they're not being respected, that their needs are not, not, being, not being not seen to, but not even being noticed and acknowledged. So, I mean, you could say, look, I acknowledge that need... And I'm doing my best, but at the moment my boss says I have to do 60 hours a week. And that's the way it is. But then we're going on vacation together. And and so remind, remembering that both of you have to work. You often find one person's doing all the work. I remember in my own failed marriage, at one point saying to a workmate, I feel I am doing 99.9% of the emotional work in this marriage. Mm. And I was just <clears throat> exhausted. I had four children. I was doing all sorts of things with my kids and working pretty much full time. And I didn't get any recognition of this and felt that I just no longer had the energy to hold it together. Mm. And, and I think a lot of women would understand that. When, when men withdraw emotionally, they might mm. come home, but they're not really there um, and it's very very hard then to maintain a connection and respect for, for them actually. Oh very well said mm -hmm. that makes me think of my own parents marriage um, you know my father was a doctor country doctor worked incredibly long crazy hours but you know how he treated my mother was just so amazing and he would come home and he always referred to her as the chief mm -hmm. and, you know, made her feel that she was indeed the chief. And she, in turn, treated him with the utmost respect. So, you know, we had no doubt that they both respected each other's jobs and roles as, as a couple. 
We had the same situation in our family, Diane and I, where we were uh, in the family with a father being a doctor and uh, a mother at home raising five children. And they definitely did treat each other with respect. Uh, father considered that the homemaker was doing an equal job raising the family. Uh, some Some people, particularly some men, lose sight of this because in a world where often it's monetary return that is valued. Sometimes the unpaid work of women, which is often being a homemaker or raising children, and often also, let's not forget their role in caring for the elderly, um, that, because it's unpaid, has often been under undervalued, most unfortunately. And now we're finding in our particular society, well, in Australia, and I would imagine it would be... <clears throat> the same in America, that now where the situation economically is that both parents need to go out to work, uh, there is a real problem with care of the elderly and with raising children. Childcare has become very, very expensive beyond the means of a lot of young families um, and there is no one there to look after the elderly who are often just put into whatever um, old age home is available. Mm. Oh, you are so right. Definitely a problem here, too. Getting back to your family, um, as I mentioned, I lived with your mom and dad. They were my mom and dad, too. And they they were such a loving couple to each other because they had fun together. They, they it so enjoyed sitting around the kitchen table when your father got home from work and having a glass of sherry and laughing and talking and just being, catching up with each other. They it's liked true. each other. That's true. They were very, very good friends. They had actually met at 15 years of age when our mother was languishing ill in her bed and asked her cousin uh, to bring home someone to, or any of his friends to come and meet her and cheer her up. And he, in his wisdom, a cousin called Jeff, after whom our brother was later na named, brought our father Douglas home. They were both at Wesley College at the time, uh, Methodist private school, and uh, uh, both very cheerful boys, and cousin Jeff brought Douglas as a 15-year-old home to meet Sadie Olivia, also 15, and that's really that really was the beginning of the romance. I didn't know that. Mm. That's lovely. And then, then they became good friends and were engaged at 18, but uh, Sadie Olivia was somewhat fiery and at one stage threw the ring back <laughs> at Douglas in that early time when she was 18 and her mother scurried after it. And she, she was very fond of Douglas and she, she scurried after the ring and found it and gave it back. And they uh, remained friends but broke their engagement off at that point. Later on became uh, engaged and married around about 22 or 23 years of age. Mm. Well, you know, sometimes you need a little little bit of fire in there as long as it's kept fairly respectful yeah. not saying words you can never take absolutely back. <laughs> they actually did they they never swore at each other and i've heard a lot of couples who actually do they didn't ever swear at each other they may have raised their voices now and again but not very often and they really did treat each other with respect now one of the difficulties was back in the what back in the day of uh, our mother uh, back in Western Australia at that time, a working woman 
uh, once she was engaged to be married, if she happened to be in, in the area of teaching or nursing, and I guess it was the case in other careers, uh, congratulations were offered on the engagement and then there was the request for a resignation. So women were not permitted, once married, to con to continue upon the uh, embarking upon their uh, their career as a nurse or as a teacher. So that, of course, meant that they were in inverted commas kept women, uh, and if they had a very um, fair and ethical husband who saw their role as a homemaker and uh, and uh, raiser of children as equal to his own, that all went well. But if they had a, a husband who was in any way a bully and who controlled the finances and felt that he was being very generous, uh, doling it out, it made for all sorts of our, all sorts of problems. Luckily, that was not a problem um, far from in our family where both our mother and father were respectful to each other. Nice. It was uh, difficult in our family in some ways too because father in his early days, uh, in his 30s, he was a qualified doctor and he was studying under Macomb who was the top plastic surgeon in Western Australia at the time and he had all sorts of wonderful career prospects ahead of him. But this, this was around about 1956 when there was an epidemic of polio and most unfortunately uh, our father working his very long hours at the hospital and not getting much rest or relaxation succumbed and he suffered from polio and actually was bedridden and paralysed and unable to speak or feed himself. This went on for months and he was on death's doorstep. Uh, and actually recovered and was in rehabilitation for a full year. And he, who'd been a very strong uh, six-foot man, playing guitar, surfing, golfing, very physically active, uh, found out what it was like to be uh, the patient and to be the invalid and dependent on others. But in actual fact, it really strengthened him psychologically, mentally, and in every way, spiritually, uh, to become a better doctor because he certainly could understand his patient's point of view. And mother went from being the protected one and the petite little almost princess to becoming the care, the caregiver and she really rose to the occasion. It was certainly not, not easy at that stage with a five-year-old, four-year-old and 11-month-old child. She was totally amazing. Oh, I love it. That gives wow. me goosebumps. Definitely. And then your father went on to a career as an allergist, wasn't he? Yes, he did. He was he yeah. was no longer able to stand the sort of... He wasn't able to physically stand up for the sort of hours required for surgery. Uh, but he gradually improved and he, in health, and went back into being a, a general practitioner and uh, even having two more children, so five children in the end. And he developed an interest in, an interest in allergy uh, allergies, and uh, he he did all sorts of things. He was president of the Rotary Club of Mundaring, as you know, and we lived in Glen Forest nearby. He was later on president of the WA Car Club as well, and uh, he certainly was. He certainly believed that each and every one of us should be a contributor, not only to our own family but our own our own local community. He was very strong in that all of our family he was a he really set the goals high and he believed uh in inculcating ethics um within the family to the children actually i i wanted to make a comment here which i think is really important 
in um, the role of women because uh, the f although there were five of us, the f my sister Sue and I are 13 months apart and obviously the first and second in this family of five. And our brother was three years after us and he was, as we say, just before the polio. But our father encouraged us as girls mm. in the 50s and 60s at a time when girls left school at 14 mm. or 15 and girls who could have studied, who could have gone to university, their parents said, you'll just get married, you won't need to have a career, go off and learn to type and take shorthand. Um, but we were lucky because our father believed that women should have careers, that women should have a university education, and we were encouraged to stay on at school. Um, we went to a small private school which was lived with, that happened to be a girls' school near where we lived. And uh, I think in my, it was really little. I, my, when I started there, there were 25 in what we called um, first year high school, which is now equivalent of year eight in Australia. So the first year of high school. Um, and there was 25 in the class before us, I mean, and we actually had two classes of 25. But come after the third year of high school, when we were 15, it, it halved again. And uh, there were only, you know, 25 of us who actually completed our 12 years of school at that school. And my sister Sue was a year ahead. She'd been at another school, came over in Beginning third year of, high school mm -hmm. when you were 15. Mm -hmm. And she, um, her class only had 12. 19 in final year. 19, 19, 19 in, the in their final, final year. year of school. Mm -hmm. So we were, there was no thought that we wouldn't go to uni. And uh, I went off and, and uh, did medicine. And my sister went overseas for a year to France and Italy on a um, an opportunity gap to year. go a gap year with other student, other female students, which was very very beneficial to her. And later did teaching, uh, and it was really because we were encouraged to do that that we had the opportunity as women to have choices later mm -hmm. in our marriage, because I do know of people who when things turned sour or were very difficult, who didn't have the option to actually make a path of their own, bring up their children and give their children opportunities. So I think that he was rather forward for his time in believing that women should actually also have... In fact, he probably thought women should have better education mm -hmm. than men mm -hmm. because we are the people who bring up the next generation. Mm -hmm. And if we can do well... Um, then, then our children should, male and female children, should do well. Um, and he was ahead of his time there and always very supportive. If you displayed an interest in something, Dad was out looking into it and getting you the things to make it or do it. Or, and Sue will agree with that, won't you? Mm, I will. Indeed, that raises an interesting point because it's reminding me that in the Baha'i faith, one of the tenets is that if a family has the money to uh, educate only some of the children, then the female children are to be educated first, as they are the first teachers of the next generation, which very much fits in with the uh, Montessorian studies. And most of you will know that Montessori was the first female graduate in medicine uh, in Italy, and I think she died around about 1952. Uh, and she definitely, um, she did definite studies which showed that what happens in those first three years of life is incredibly important. And I don't know whether it's five years or seven years, but I know that the Jesuits used to say, 
Give me the boy till he's five, between five and seven, and I'll show you the man. Those first few years of life are far too important to just farm your child out, uh, no matter how well they may be cared for by some well-meaning person. Uh, really is the time of spiritual sensibility, the time when they become, when they develop their spiritual awareness and also uh, their intellect is developing and they definitely need very strong input for values, for ethics, uh, these sorts of things. They need to be looked after, be, need to be educated by a mother, father or other um, connected person to the family because if they sometimes they do need to be put out to daycare for a, for a day or two per week but no matter how caring and how well-meaning uh, the daycare workers may be and certainly will attend to their physical needs and see that they're they're fed well and and occupied and so on uh, it is mu it's very very important at this stage that they're with family or those who really love them um, and will be able to um, attend to their their spiritual and mental needs as well as their physical needs at that time. I, I think, Sue, you're, you're assuming that everybody will have the opportunity to have a family member look after your child. One of the things that I think has been really big in the last few years, I don't, and that is that childcare workers are not just interested people who go and say, oh, I like children, I'll look after them. They have to have a tertiary education as well in how to do these things and how to nurture the children, stimulate them, uh, increase, and, and all sorts of things like that. Their social abilities, they're very, very good on working on language development. There's more than one person who's found that their child got toilet trained <laughs> while they were at daycare. So it, it's, it's actually, if people need to work, and more and more families, you said, need both, both parents to work, that having affordable, high-quality daycare so that the children are not deprived is, is really a right. Um, and I think this is probably where a lot of families struggle uh, because they can't find or access relatives or other people to look after the children, but they have to work. Mm. So, you know, it, 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 it may not be the same as being looked after by a loving family member but believe me my in my um, knowledge of of the daycare system with picking up grandchildren who don't go full-time to daycare but do spend some time there is that they are very well loved very very fond of their of the people at daycare and they learn a lot and and love it so I I'm, and and in, once they get to three years old, they're actually taught by qualified early childhood teachers, so that they're not just carers anymore. Mm. So I don't think we should think that a child that can't access a relative, because lots of people don't have one, um, or there may be a mother or father who doesn't, for whatever reason, have the other partner there, um, that the child can be definitely loved and looked after by. A non-family member. Mm. I do agree. You'd with agree what with that, Beth, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. I'm, I was just thinking when when my son was around three, um, he needed to go be with other children and to get out of from underneath my care and his father's care for a few hours every day. And we found a retire a teacher who was home with her children while they were little who took Taylor in 
and Jane was a godsend. I mean, she was so good for him. And, and so, yeah, there's the balance. And I still think that fits into the role that you were saying about that age where, you know, the Jes- what the Jesuits said about, yeah. So that, that is important. And I think in the United States, you are finding that, that your daycare or pre, even the preschool caretakers are being trained. I work with a, a woman, Sarah Ray, at the Reynolds Homestead now, and that is what her degree in college is in. But alas, it costs money. And for a lot of people, you barely can find the money to, you know, fork up a hundred dollars a week or whatever. And I'm sure I'm I don't even know. Gosh, what I think it costs. it's I think it's more like a hundred dollars a day back at home. I think my daughter was saying recently it's a hundred and sixty dollars a, a day. day. Didn't she? Per child. Yeah, I don't know well, about see, the situation. Well, see, but people don't earn that no, here. <laughs> no, I don't know about the situation here, but it has become. We can only really there talk is, about there is there is a gov- but there is actually in Australia there is actually government subsidy for mm. childcare, according to means, and so a, a person who. Women who um, might be a single mother, for instance, and they would normally be on a single mother's pension, are encouraged to work once the child goes to school, and they they may have other children, or even when the child isn't at school, encouraged to work to a certain amount which doesn't penalise their pension, and they they can access quite a good subsidy, a very good subsidy, so that they're not worse off for going to work so that they can actually benefit from going to work because there's a lot of concern about women losing skills Mm -hmm. and confidence particularly and also um, seniority and other things like that by not working. Yes, my sister mentioned superannuation. We do have a compulsory superannuation system in, in Australia whereby if someone has a permanent job, then the and they that they they get paid their wages and then their employer has to put a certain percentage, which is 9%, I think, mm. at the moment, what to a superannuation mean? fund, which is a fund for them to have for retirement. And what? it's actually put in by the employer. Now, not everybody accesses this because, I must admit, as a general practitioner, medical practitioner, I don't get superannuation. But, it, but anyone who is casual doesn't. Um, but they would usually pay, be paid a higher rate because they're not getting holiday pay, sick pay and superannuation. So the idea is that if you work, you do get benefits by putting some money aside for your retirement um, and a bit of holiday pay, sick pay, payment if, you, if you're off sick. Um, but also the, the means, because they know most people are going to have to go back into the workforce. And if someone, even a doctor, doesn't work for 10 years, that's, a, you know, you've, a, lot of, a lot of people have to reskill, they've lost confidence. And so it's important for people to maintain their skills. Um, there is, the law does say that basically a permanent employee can have at least a year off without losing their job. You mean uh, for parental leave? For parental mm-hmm. leave. And there's actually paid parental leave, I think, for two weeks for dads that they can apply for as well. When This is all new. A lot of this is new. Um, so, And some companies also will provide three months pay. Mm-hmm. So the mother, when she has a baby, can get 19 weeks of baseline payment, you know, mm-hmm. sort of base, baseline payment. 
because mothers used to I mean I've seen mothers go back to where work I actually had knew a mother who arranged for her baby to be induced on Fridays because she had to go back to work Monday oh that's crazy mm-hmm. that's yeah. ludicrous isn't and it, so and so basically um, that's the sort of situation <laughs> where people couldn't afford to take time off after a baby to breastfeed and to bond and to to do all these wonderful things that we need to do with our necessary, new babies yeah, um, and and often couldn't find very good substitutes for their child either and so um, at least now our government does subsidize the first 19 weeks um, and it's whichever parent stays home so if the mother goes back to work the father can stay home and access the payment in addition to the other person's income which does help because as you know um, Having babies is expensive. The other issue to bring up here, I guess, is um, about universal health cover. And in Australia, we do have that. And that probably is the most amazing thing that we have. We didn't always have it, but we have had it now for at least 40 years. Well, when I was over in 1975, it was just starting. Mm, I thought, what is this wonderful system? it's, (laughs) It's a system whereby people who are employed actually contribute a small amount and I must admit I'm not sure if it's one percent or one and a half percent of their income towards Medicare but people who on a very low income or who are on a pension or unemployed don't obviously contribute but everybody if they need medical care they can see a doctor and they can get a rebate on on the cost and some people, some doctors will will actually see them for the rebate, um, and that's everybody of any age, whether they have a pension or not. If they break their leg or needs urgent surgery, they can go through a public hospital and they can get it. Um, about fifty percent, though, of operations and things are actually done in private hospitals, so private insurance is encouraged, and there's actually a rebate for the, in the premium for the government depending on how much a person earns. So um, if a person earns not much, they'll get a 30% rebate on the premium. And then it reduces up to a certain point where they don't get the money. Um, and so it works quite well. We have about 50% of operations and things are done in private hospitals. And occasionally the government even subsidizes care in a private hospital to get things done quicker. So we that's probably one of the most exciting things about living in Australia is that um, no one is not covered for, for medical care and it makes a big difference. We also have subsidised medicines, so all uh, essential medications are subsidised, not free, but, for, but cheap for people on a pension or who are unemployed and people pay no more than um, $38, something like that, a script for other medications up to a certain level when they become cheaper. For instance, I'm on an arthritis medication which costs the government $1,800 a month and I pay $38 for it. Nice. Because someone over here would go without if they did not have the... even You might even have insurance, but it might not cover that Mm. particular medicine. It has to be medication that's been approved by the government and, and I guess this is probably one of the few instances where the government is actually looking ahead in that if someone like me with rheumatoid arthritis 
becomes more crippled because they don't get the medication. Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to cost them a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and they if, lose your worth yeah, as a doctor. Yeah, they lose they lose my in, the, the income that I um, make and pay tax on, mm-hmm. and they lose my contribution mm-hmm. to the community. That's invested a lot of money in educating me mm. um, in the free school system and um, and through university, which when we did university was also free. It's not now, but uh, but people can certainly get um, a deferred payment scheme that um, so that everybody can go to university. So uh, I think you know there. I mean, I sound like I'm an advertisement for Australia, but I am saying I am. Well, you do know I am definitely about the saying system, I do know that sure. as a GP, a general mm. practitioner, medical practitioner, I certainly know I work in. I've always worked in low-income areas, and 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 I know a lot of people who struggle, but they still can get the level of care. And there are sometimes ways we manipulate. For instance, we can send someone to see a private surgeon, who can who operates in a public hospital. So they'll pay to see the surgeon, but then they get their operation free. Mm-hmm. And that way I've had people who needed to be seen really quickly, um, someone with severe sinus, with a lot of pain, and needing really needing something. Once they've seen the surgeon, usually within four weeks, they'll actually be in the hospital. I must admit, the public wait list is a lot longer. But there are ways to, um, you know, you. You, you don't have to do without medical care. Mm-hmm. And uh, I must admit, it's the reason that one of my daughters, who is American and lived here for 11 years, actually returned to Australia uh, for f- for the readiness of access to medical care when she developed medical issues. Mm-hmm. And as Diane said, the community, uh, the community is the winner because you have people uh, not languishing uh, at home, unable to work. They're back into the workforce, usually, usually happier and healthier, and paying their taxes. Um, and you know, everyone is the winner that way. And really, it ends up being false economy not to pay for the the, um, the you know the community community members' health. Uh, the more the government pays for reasonable medical access. Uh, the better off the community works. Now, is there resentment, as there is here, towards people who may seem to take advantage of that system? I you think the person, the 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 the, per, the person, or whatever it is that most resents it, is the government, <laughs> uh, because because the government has made itself the insurer of the people, and so if people access. They, they worry if people access the services too much. But what you do find, particularly I see in an area where people are low income, they have a lot of chronic issues, particularly mental health issues, mm-hmm. relationship issues, um, often also um, addiction issues uh, with alcohol and other things. And they, they tend to have more medical issues mm-hmm. and therefore they do access medical care more often. So, but uh, so I would say that yes, Australians go to the doctor for much more minor things than they would elsewhere. However, um, quite often someone goes for something minor, and opportunistically, you do their blood pressure and you do checkups that they wouldn't have. I've seen people come in really just come in because their 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 wife was seeing me and they said I'm bringing my husband in. Finding out has terrible, terrible um, high blood pressure and 
uh, what, and, and um, high cholesterol and, and, you know, a lot of issues that were totally unta- uh, un- being untreated and putting him at high risk of early heart disease. If he hasn't got it already, nip them in the bud. Um, and so preventative, we provide mm. probably well GPs like me provide a lot of preventative mm. care, um, keep and keeping people in the workforce mm. and keeping people healthier, helping people to get out of bad situations, um, to access proper housing. A lot of these, I mean, there's still poor people, there's still people who struggle, um, but there is no real excuse for not accessing medical care in Australia. Um, it's, it, I mean, I don't know many countries that have this like this. Even New Zealand doesn't have this. And um, I, I think that the government is... Governments need to see how important primary care is. It's the same as the education of a child in the early years, access to immunisation, making them health, the mother healthy in pregnancy, starting them off well, and then the next one is keeping people well, mm. because in the end, the primary system co- saves money. Yes. So um, they keep forgetting, unfortunately, well that, GPs, that GPs are the cheapest way to keep people well, because once they're, like I see someone, for instance, who has had two lots of diverticulitis in the last month or so, both times I've seen her, I've diagnosed her, I've done some blood tests which confirmed the, that the inflammation was there, her white cells had gone up, the markers were up, put her on antibiotics before I even got the blood results, and she got better. So if I didn't treat her, she's going to perforate her bowel, she's going to end up with major surgery. So, you know... And she's going to cost the government a lot of money. Well, it costs thousands of dollars a day to have people in hospital whereas it costs I don't know what it costs the government $60 or something for a visit to the doctor Um, and then the antibiotics weren't even expensive antibiotics and she's well again so I you know it's you, if you, it's always the same, isn't it? A stitch in time saves nine. Mm. Yeah. Um, Preventative pe- rather than remedial. You know, you want to you want to get the person with high blood pressure and high cholesterol before the heart attack, mm. because other then they when they need the bypass, that's when it gets really expensive. Um, to prevent premature illness, not just premature death, is well, that's my aim anyway. I'm very big on preventative mm-hmm. medicine. Anyway, we still, that's been one of our successes, but I think we still do have some other um, challenges on which we're working, such as the superannuation of women not being anywhere near that of men. Uh, quite often because women have been out of the workforce for many years or they've worked part-time to accommodate their uh, family duties, they often have an inadequate superannuation on a retirement. So you mean a salary? Uh, that, yes, they haven't had their salary. They've, they've had no salary or had a low salary because of doing uh, part-time work so that their superannuation at their time of retirement... Which we here we would say your social security oh, check yes. is going to be a lot lower. Yes, it is. <laughs> Substantially and, lower. Right. And not really adequate entering mm-hmm. into retirement. So we still, we still have a lot of things to work on. One other thing, uh, heading down a different track or back backtracking a little uh, on the childcare issue, I have noticed, particularly in Western Australia, in Perth, uh, a lot of my contemporaries now, and we are in the uh, grandparenthood stage of life now, I'm finding that uh, many of my 
colleagues, uh, once retired, are finding that they definitely ha um, have to go into and are enjoying um, uh, grandparent duties because, once again, as we said, childcare duties have uh, childcare fees have gone through the roof in most cases, um, and therefore young families who are trying to pay off their homes even trying to pay their rents, can't really afford to have the um, to pay the childcare fees so that the mother can go out to work. So quite often the mother has been going back to work, but the grandparents have been filling in the gap. That's becoming increasingly prevalent. Um, just just um, noticing that. If, I don't know if that's the case here, though. I'd be very interested oh, to hear your views. I think a lot of grandparents have assumed that duty. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that that's true. Grandfathers, too. But then again, a lot of us work, you know. Here I am, 60. Well, Social Security, you really don't even begin to get a decent check till, what, 66? And they encourage you to work to 70 now. So, you know, I couldn't have taken care of my grandchild and then had kept working. The same thing is really happening with us regarding uh, the pension, isn't it, Di? That's gone up to, that was 65, but that's gone up to about 67 it, now and heading uh, towards I, I've just turned also. 65 and uh, people who turned 65 at the first part of this year, um, you know, January till June, actually could retire at 65. Um, and then, but people in the second half of the year, it's gone up to 65 and a half. To receive so, a pension. To a get the pension. So, theoretically, I could retire and get the pension. Only, I'm one of these people who doesn't have much superannuation. <laughs> um, and, 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 not my, and very little savings, mostly because of marriage breakdown and right. loss of, right. and suddenly having to take on a big mortgage in midlife and school fees and things and responsibility, family responsibilities. I, at 65, I find I couldn't work full-time and because my job is emotionally very draining, but I work at least half-time. And I do have grandparent duties, but I'm, mine are more along the lines of picking up from the daycare. Right, yes. Um, and, um, you know, minding so that the parents can have time out together without the children, which I think is critical because I'm sure that part of my marriage was that we actually didn't do much on our own for a long time and really just lost connection um, at some stage. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I, I believe that grandparents are really important in the children's development. Our grandparents were critically important in our lives. Um, Sue and I were very lucky that we spent quite a lot of our early life, partly because our father had polio, and we used to get farmed off to our paternal grandparents a lot the others had died um, and we learned a lot of ethical things and a lot of structure and a lot of um, oh yeah it, 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 we, we learned a lot of ways of living that have been very useful to us in later life that our younger siblings didn't actually have mm -hmm. and and struggled so I think that grandparents have a lot to offer and I must admit as a grandparent I have a right to say no and I do sometimes, and then they have to make alternate arrangements. Um, and they're, so they're tired. Let's face it, little children are tiring. And, <laughs> and quite frankly, having a, a four-month-old baby for an hour and a half when it's awake 
is not exactly restful. So I th- I think <laughs> that you know I, I I think it would be really hard to be a full time carer as a grandparent of a small child, um, or and particularly a few small children running around. I don't think you can give the best of yourself to children under those situations. But I still think a loving relationship and for children to have other relatives provide other than their parents that they trust and love and who really just love them, you know, sort of completely um, and without... um, Judgment. I think uh, that's where aunts and is uncles. really, really. <laughs> yes, um, well, my kids family. are lucky because I have four children. Sue has three, and so my my grandchildren have aunts, and I've got three stepchildren as well. My aunts, my children have aunts and uncles. We we had very few have aunts and uncles in plenty, and you know there are times when an aunt will take like Maddie took Maddie it wasn't a day when she wanted to either but the mother co- the mother couldn't and she took her her niece um Gabby to um a pop concert i can't remember <laughs> who it was but uh, Maddie said well it wasn't as bad as i thought it would be <laughs> but she but Gabby was about 13 and she had the tickets and waited all this time and then her mother was sick and couldn't go so her auntie took her, and uh, and that's um, it, it is lovely. Sue said, would say the same thing. You you had an aunt who was really important to you. Um, yes, and let me tell you that yeah. I'm an aunt who's just minded my niece's dog, uh, a tiny little dog, for twelve days, and that particular niece happens to have a a key to my house. She can come and go when she wants to, and she knows that she can leave her dog with me for twelve days, and uh, that all will be well. She'll come back to a healthy, happy dog. <laughs> So that's our, that's the Families fur, the fur grandchildren. Exactly. And I think a lot of grandparents look after fur babies as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Oh, well, Leslie, what do you have to well, say? Well, I just have a question. Um, you know, we've talked about you. There were five of you. Yes. Uh, what, what about the other kids? Um, what have they done? Or Well, the, the uh, as I said, my sister and I probably... We were a different group from the others, even though our brother was five years younger, yeah. uh, only three years younger than I am and four years younger than Sue, because I guess we were the pre-polio children, yeah. um, but we did spend a lot of time with our grandparents. Our brother was a bit difficult, mm-hmm. and it might have been because Dad was in hospital for a year and home yeah. on, and there was and basically there was no income during that time, and it was very hard times, mm-hmm. and I think my brother probably was fairly neglected and he he um he was hard so he didn't go to he didn't have this influence of the grandparents mm-hmm. and yes. he also when he went to school we both thrived at school mm-hmm. he had a bit of a learning disability mm-hmm. which mum used to put down to the teacher but um as it it seems it probably was just something he had mm-hmm. so he didn't thrive yeah. at school yeah. in the same way but was very good at sport and socially very very well did well but we went to university our brother left school he was probably completing he was probably high school the brightest of all five of us to tell you the truth well i don't uh, know that i would even compare i would just say that he was different mm-hmm. and then the younger two are much much younger and they were 60s children mm-hmm. And our mother was not as interested, and they well, basically very different, very different their lives have been very different. So our brother died aged thirty four in a tractor accident. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeff, who was four years younger than I, three years younger than Diane. In actual fact, as Diane said, at the time when father had polio and nearly lost his life, 
and we all learned about death there at age five and four. Diane and I certainly did. Um, mother was very fearful but very brave. She had to drive in uh, to see him. In her, she wasn't a very confident driver at all. She had to drive in to see him. Uh, she changed her religion from Presbyterian to Church of England because the Church of England minister would go in almost daily to visit my father at great risk to himself, I might add. It was very brave indeed and you wouldn't really expect that of anybody, minister or anyone else. Um, Diane and I were lucky enough when father was being rehabilitated or after he, were, after he was well enough to be rehabilitated and to go east over to Melbourne for a trip there uh, by train with my mother for his recuperation. Uh, Diane and I were, uh, we, we stayed with the grandparents. In fact, I started school. I started grade school um, when we were with the grandparents, but they were unable to take three of us, so it was only Diane and I who were lucky enough to to stay with them. And I remember that in the nine, we nine weeks we spent with them, my grandfather, who was a, a an ex-headmaster and teacher, to, I don't remember the details, but he completely taught me how to read so that when I arrived at my next school uh, nine weeks into year one, I could certainly read fluently, and that was just thanks to my grandfather. And so Diane and I were extremely lucky, but Geoffrey, aged about 11 months, needed to be needed to go to somebody and the only other person available at the time was a housekeeper a very loving lady very good woman but not a relative and although a very caring person very loving person she didn't have that family connection she didn't have the the family love uh even though she was a very she looked after him and and his welfare was very much a high priority with her but unfortunately being 11 months he didn't know he didn't understand why he was left there or whether he were ever going to leave there or someone was going to come and fetch him he didn't have the understanding and I and that's around about the time that he actually started having fits and holding his breath you may remember I think it was a bit later but but the issue was that there was a lot of things happening when he was a baby yeah. and then the other children dad was back at work part-time he never had the same income he was actually he, he actually was what we call hemiplegic which means one side of his body was weak from weakened from the polio it happened to be his right side uh, it wasn't just that he couldn't stand for periods but he didn't have the um, dexterity to be a surgeon I mean, he did used to do a bit of suturing up of wounds and things like that, but his writing was appalling, and it was... Oh, um, well, most doctors have well, yeah, writing. Notes, I later worked in, in, the practice, in the GP practice with him for a while, and, and it was impossible to read. And uh, so I, half the time I'd say, what did you write here? And he said, I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember. It was squiggle, squiggle. Um, so basically, he, the, he's, he, that's partly why he took up another interest because mm. he was a bit frustrated in what he wanted to do but he did love all his children but the younger ones I mean we were grown up our mm. brother our br younger brother and sister saw us as grown-ups mm. because yes, yes. Um, uh, you I, were 10 and and 12 yeah, when well, the younger two were born I was nine and and 11 and yeah. and they uh, they basically both of them they they went to school they did well they both got degrees from university but they also suffer from depression, mm -hmm. and neither of them have had meaningful careers. Well, let yeah. me let me put, say something mm. about since I lived with the family, and yeah. I am one of your uh, at least honorary siblings. Indeed. I can say Indeed. all five of them 
were so kind and good to me who came in and lived in their home and you know had the love and and fun with their mm. parents. No, not one of the five resented me. No, they they were very, very lovely. But you are a very loving person and very oh. easy to accept. <laughs> as a well, well, thank you, Sue. But you, it wasn't just you, Beth, because in fact, it was a very embracing family and mm-hmm. we, inv- we, our family, it was always other people around the dinner table. It didn't matter what, what country they came from, what color they were, mm. Um, you know, what so religion they were that was yeah, immaterial. Uh, it didn't matter if they were homosexual or anything like that. So it was a very um, open, accepting environment, yes. which we went on to have in our families. I mean, my children growing up, um, I had a, a very, very gay camp cleaning man at one stage. And my son said later, he was a teenager at the time, he said, you know, that was very good for us because he and his young male friends around 14, 15 got to know this, this man whose name was Lou, um, who, who, who used to work in cabaret and so his sequin costumes and things. And they said, and see how normal, well, normal in his own way, he was a bit eccentric, and, and how unthreatening the whole issue was. And in fact, my, one of my son's really good friends from when he did his social work training is is a young man who's gay and one of my children also is gay but uh, so I think that was part that was one of the richness rich things that we grew up with uh, is that there was always someone coming in the door and so when it came to welcoming someone to come live with us well why not this will be good we'll enjoy this and it was it was that way and uh, I went on to have exchange students um, under different programs from different countries later as well but Beth was, you've got to admit, a very special, oh, very she was loving the, She was the first student. exchange student. If it had been a disaster, they may not have been so embracing <laughs> of others. Um. And I must admit the same thing happened in my family. Our first exchange student, we just fell in love with. We didn't want to give him back. <laughs> and, uh, and he's still really good. We're still close to him years and years later. Um, so... You know, it, it, it's, I guess, because we had this very open upbringing that we're um, here today. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Embrace, embracing lots of new people. And, yeah. and, and we, uh, yeah, we all are one human family after all. And I think we should be working for that unity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we really do appreciate you guys coming and participating. I learned a lot. Thank you very yeah, much. appreciate your honesty us. about things. And I guess we better wind it up. Our show notes can be found at quincepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook under Quince Podcast. We're on iTunes under Quince Podcast. Or you might find us easier under Beth Almond Ford or Leslie Sheeler. And we're also on Stitcher Radio if you have that app on your phone or tablet. And we hope to see you in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>